Once the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile the idea that God is fully in control of everything with the idea that humans are really responsible for their choices and actions? How do you reconcile these concepts? And with his ever-witty response, he said, friends do not need to be reconciled. Friends don't need to be reconciled. And in our minds, we don't understand how these things fit together, but in reality, they go hand in glove. I think that quote underlines something that is true in our day. We often pit two things against each other that aren't actually opposed. We make enemies out of concepts that actually are friends. And I don't think there's a better example in our world today and even in the church culture today than between the concepts of love and truth. We often say, how do we be loving and truthful? And I believe Spurgeon's answer would be the same I'd give. Friends don't need to be reconciled. Truth and love are not opposed they are actually interdependent on each other. Think about in our world today. We make enemies out of love and truth. We make love the enemy of truth. To be compassionate and patient nowadays is to be labeled compromising, as if somehow you can't be compassionate while holding the truth. At the same time, often there are people who make truth to be the enemy of love. In order to not compromise, I have to yell and be angry and, and mean-spirited, as if somehow I can't speak the truth in love. The Bible never separates the two. The Bible doesn't pit the two against each other. In fact, it tells us they're friends. So how do we work out truth and love? Well, 2 John will tell us just that. And just notice as I read through these 13 verses how many times in each verse we see truth, love, truth, love, truth, love. They're everywhere. So, beginning in verse 1. Be elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I hope to come to see you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This morning, our main point will be this. Love others by loving truth. Love others by loving truth. We're going to break this into two sections. We're going to split the letter in half, verses 1 through 6. Walk in truth and love. Walk in truth and love. And then 7 through 13, guard the truth in love. First, walk in truth and love. And then second, verses 7 to 13, guard the truth in love. Now, we have to understand what we have just spent a few months in to understand what we're talking about in 2 John. We just last week finished 1 John. And John writes the first letter because there are false teachers who are denying three essential things. They're denying that Jesus is the Son of God. They're denying that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And third, as we saw towards the end of John's first letter, they're denying the necessity of his bloody death. And John is warning in general churches, don't listen to these lies. Second John is written to a specific church who is likely entertaining these lies. So first John, as, as you notice, many of the themes that we've just spent months looking at show up here. First John, general to a church. Second John, to a specific church who's flirting with these ideas. And he's saying, stop, stop. So that said, verses 1 through 6, walk in truth and love. In verse 1, we're introduced to the author and the audience. And unlike Paul's letters, where he just gives us a very nice Paul to the Corinthians, we have the elder to the elect lady. What in the world is he talking about? First, let's just deal with the author. We know it's John, not only from church history, but the language he uses and the way he writes is identical to 1 John. It, this is John writing, but why does he use the phrase, the elder? In the Old Testament, elder was a reference to, to Israel's religious leaders. Throughout the New Testament, the phrase is synonymous with a pastor, but here he says he is the elder. Why does he say the elder? Most commentators think that this is a reference to him likely at this point of the writing being the last living apostle. Him saying, I have authority as the apostle. And he uses this phrase coming out of Judaism, this, this authority. I am the elder writing to the elect lady. What in the world again? The elect lady. I just said it was a, a church. Here he says it's the elect lady. How do you get a church out of that? Just a couple of considerations. Number one, every time you read the word you in this book, in this letter, it's in the plural. So it's not you, specific elect lady. This is you all. You all, plural, or where I come from, you guys. You all. Secondly, look at verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. 
Most likely, verse 13 is a reference to another specific church greeting this church. So the church and its members, the the lady and her children. And third reason, we have precedent. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter ends his letter, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So we have here, and most people agree, 1 Peter is a reference to the church in Rome, greeting. We have a lady being called, called chosen, greeting another church. All that to say, John likely here as the last living apostle is writing to a specific church, calling her the chosen or elect lady, distinct from the world, set apart from the world, chosen by God out of the world, he's writing to the church. But for our purposes, notice what he says in verse 1. It's that truth ties us together in love. Truth is like the rope that brings us together in love. He says, whom I love in the truth. He could have just said, whom I love. He doesn't. He says, whom I love in the truth, grounded in the truth, defined by the truth. John is writing to the church, and he says, I love you in truth. Meaning, you and I, believers, have believed truth. Well, what truth? Primarily the truth about who Jesus said he was. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. He is God revealed in human flesh. These essential doctrines to the faith, his person, God in the flesh, his death, burial, and resurrections, these are the essential truths that we hold by faith. And he says, I love you in that. You are in truth. I am in truth. And that defines our love for each other. Truth defines our love. But look at verse 2. It doesn't just define it. It actually fuels it. Verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Why do I love you in truth? Because of the truth that's in us. Truth is fueling. It's like fuel to the fire of our love. You believe the same Jesus I believe. Therefore, I have enough fuel to my fire to love you and you to me. Oh, and it's not just John saying, I love you. He says, so do all Christians. Look at verse 1. But also all who know the truth. I love you in truth, and not only me, but everybody else who's a Christian. Christians love each other in truth. We're fueled by truth. Isn't that contrary to some of our concepts today about truth? Truth is thought to cool our love. And the more doctrine you know, the colder your heart becomes. And you just become academic. Not in John's world. Truth is actually what's fueling his heart of love for believers. Truth and love are not opposed to each other. They're friends. Love doesn't increase by downplaying truth. Hey, I'll just let you believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. And we'll actually love each other then. If we just skirt really essential doctrines under the rug and just get along, we'll really love each other. And John says, no. We love each other in the truth. We love each other in the gospel truth. And we're not going to downplay that. Nor is truth here displayed in unloving manners and attitudes. Truth and love together. 
He's holding to the, the gospel. He's preaching Jesus. He says, you hold to it. We are together, and that fuels love. We see him in our culture, in our church culture. I think in, if we're honest, in our individual lives, to lean one way or the other. Sometimes we are all about loving. In order to be quote-unquote loving, we need to downplay doctrines like sin and hell in order for us to appear loving. And like we said in the beginning, people then go to the other extreme, and they're like, well, if I'm going to be on truth, I've got to be just, quite honestly, mean-spirited so that I can't be labeled a compromiser on truth. And John says, let's meet in the middle. Let's not compromise the truth. Let's hold to the truth because that fuels love. But let's love... Or let's hold the truth in a loving, compassionate manner. Listen to what Tim Keller says about the balance between the two. He says this, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way we can't really hear it. I think that's true. If it's just love, 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 love with no truth, we just let people go in their sin. We let people believe things that we'll find in this passage are dangerous for their souls. But if we're all about truth with no love, who's going to listen to us just screaming at people? We need both. We can't compromise, but we must be compassionate. Our understanding of truth should not cool our love. It should fuel it. Our love is most deep and real when it is based on truth. Verse 3. So he says that, that love is what ties us together, in, or truth is what ties us together in love. Verse 3, he tells us that truth gives us assurance in love. I love verse 3. We skip through these because we read Paul's letters so much, and we're just like grace and peace, and we move on. And like, Look at what he says. It's very different than Paul. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. What does Paul always say? Grace to you. Peace to you. It's, it's a prayer. It's a wish. Here it's an assurance. Grace, peace, and, and, and mercy. So this undeserved favor, grace, this withholding of what we deserve in judgment, that's mercy, and peace, the absence of hostility, will be with us. He's not praying that they be with us. He's telling us they are with you. Why? Because there is a true and loving God in heaven. Notice what he's, he roots it in this, this love of father and son. From They're coming from the father and from Jesus, his son. In what? Truth and what? love. I know I have peace with God. I know there is mercy towards my sin in Christ. I know that he's gracious, bestowing favor on me that I don't deserve. Why? Because God is truthful. He cannot lie. He's not a man that he should lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And he comes sending his son in love. His son coming to display his very nature, telling the truth and displaying love. And that gives me the assurance that the God in heaven, whom I stand accountable to, will be gracious and merciful and peaceful. 
towards me. Grace, mercy, and peace are assured because Jesus has displayed a God of truth and a God of love. Not just a God of truth, nor just a God of love, but a God of love and truth. Truth and love. We need this grace and truth that Jesus brings, do we not? We need this love and grace. We who, who, we need his truth because what his truth does is it exposes us. He comes and he says, this is who God is. He's holy. He's just. He's good. He's kind. We need that to expose us to say everything that God is. When I look at myself, I'm not. I fall short of that. I sin. I deserve his justice because I break his laws and I'm not like him. But I also need the love that he brings. He comes full of grace and truth. He comes to show grace to people who are not living like God requires. To people who are falling short, this truth that's exposing our error also exposes his loving nature. It also exposes his mercy most clearly at the cross where Jesus dies for my sins where Jesus bears my guilt and he bears yours so that anyone who believes would be forgiven. So mercy, grace, and peace are rooted in love and truth. Love and truth are what tie us together and love and truth are assured because of God who is both loving and truthful. Verse 4, he tells us to walk or live devoted to truth. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So we're going to kind of work backwards in this verse. God has commanded, it is the will of God for us to walk in truth. Or that word walk has the idea of live. We are commanded by God to live in truth. Truth is presented as this path or this sidewalk that we are to live on. We're to walk on. We're to stay in truth. We're to believe the, the right things about who Jesus is. We're to be people who are rooted in right theology that, of the essentials. That's God's will. Notice here, truth is not just something that's abstract that you believe. It's something you apply. It's something you live. It's a way that you live. Truth is to be lived, not just admired. Best illustration, I may have used this one here before. I can't remember. If I did, you get a second batch of it. But in upstate New York, every once in a while, the northern lights can be seen. The northern lights are these beautiful displays of just green and purple lights reflecting something from the sun. I don't understand it all. But they're beautiful. You can go up into the Adirondack Mountains in the winter and know when it gets dark, every once in a while, you can just observe these gorgeous lights just flashing through the sky. The problem in upstate New York is they put like 8,000 pounds of salt per square inch on the roads. So your windshield just gets covered with salt. So imagine you want to go up the mountain. You know at night these lights are coming out, and you want to see them. So you drive up the mountain, and you spend like an hour just cleaning your windshield. So it's just crystal clear, so you can see these lights. And the night comes, and, and the lights come out. And what happens if you just sat there and said, I got a really clean windshield? 
my windshield is absolutely spotless. And you just admired the work of your windshield. You missed the point. You cleaned the windshield so that you could see the light. When we take truth and just admire the fact that we know truth, that's what we're doing. Boy, I got good theology. I read like five books this year on the Trinity, and I understand a little bit more about the Trinity. Look how good my theology is. It is a waste if that's where it ends. The whole point of knowing truth is that you can look upon God, and you can gaze upon him, and love him, and worship him, and apply that truth in your life. Here we're called to walk in truth, not just know about truth, but to live lives that are rooted in truth. Truth, our theology, what we believe about the Bible, is inherently meant to be practical. So I want to do two things in this sermon. Number one is, is I know we, we, we just generally tend to go one way or the other. There are some likely here who will be very analytical that love to study. I want to poke at you and say, good, keep doing that but make sure you apply it. We're going to also see some things here this morning where people are going to say things like, I just don't care about any of that theology stuff. I want application. I want to poke at you to say, you need to know the Bible to apply the Bible. We need to do both. Here he says, we are to walk in truth. That's his command. Working backward, look at the beginning of verse 4. John delights in the fact that there are some who are actually doing this. John has love that manifests in that he cares about how this church is doing spiritually. He cares about what they believe. And it brings him to the point of great rejoicing to hear that there are some in this church who are walking in the truth. Ought we to be a church where we care about how each other are doing spiritually. And one of the things that we should care about is what we believe. Sidetrack. Just to be clear, we're not talking about fighting about every minutia of doctrine. Not everything here is like, well, if you don't believe what I believe on all these things, you aren't walking in the truth like I am. Here, what is, we're talking about is the essential doctrines of the faith. What's at stake, as we're going to find out in a little bit, is who Jesus is. And John's like, you're holding to the right Jesus. Praise God. I rejoice to find you holding to Christ. This isn't let's nitpick and find everything wrong, everything you say that I could say. I don't believe that and just nitpick. There's place for discussion. There's place for what I hold to my convictions, and, and I, want, I want to just say this is what I believe, but... The unity here he's talking about and what brings him great joy is not that they all agree about the second coming. Isn't it that they have the same exact thinking about spiritual gifts? It's that they have the same Christ in common. So he rejoices to find some. You see the seed of what the problem will be in this book? He doesn't say, I rejoice that I find you all walking in the truth. There are some who are flirting with error. He rejoices. There, there are some in the truth, but we're going to find later that there are some who are not, or at least flirting with. So verse 4, walk in truth. Verse 5 and 6, walk in love. Walk in love. Verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, 
not as though I were writing to you a new command, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. What John's doing here is he's saying, this command to love one another didn't start with me. It's not something that's revolutionary, that's new, that I just brought to you that's the latest, greatest doctrine. Hey, I got the most innovative doctrine. I guess you, you guys have probably never heard it. Love one another. No, he says, this is, this is something very old. It's actually found in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was said before Jesus came in Matthew 5 and said it. It was said in Leviticus. And then Jesus comes, and what does he say? By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another as I have loved you. So the new covenant reiteration of this old command is that we don't just love each other as we love ourselves. We actually love in the way that Christ has loved us, selflessly, sacrificially, for the good of each other. And he tells us in verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. Love here is defined by God. Love is not left for you to say, well, what do I think love is? What does the culture tell me love is? We're not left here to say, let me invent love. He tells us what love looks like. It's obedience to his commands. You say, that's not what I was expecting him to say. Isn't that kind of cold-hearted obedience Law, keeping, no. Think about what happens when we keep his commands. When we keep his commands, we will not hate one another or murder each other. That's an expression of love. When we keep his commands, we won't steal each other's stuff. That's an expression of love. When we, when we keep his commands, we won't covet what each other has. We won't, we won't treat someone else's spouse as if they are our own. Those are expressions of love. We'll build each other up with our speech rather than tearing each other down. We'll speak the truth, not lies. We'll have affectionate hearts one to another. The keeping of his commands is the expression. It's, it's what love looks like. If we keep his commands, we love. When we don't keep his commands is when we don't love each other. So here he's telling us, walk in truth. Walk in love. Truth is what ties us in love. Truth is what fuels our love. So we need to walk in both. You can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. And as we've said briefly, I just want to make more explicitly, these aren't just concepts. They're found in the person of Christ, who is love and who is truth. Do you want to grow in love? You must go to the person of Christ who's expressing, who's revealing the Father's heart. Do you want to grow in truth? Get closer to Jesus. He is truth. It's not just, I need concepts of love and I need concepts of truth. We need Christ who's both perfectly, who holds them in perfect balance, who does nothing but speak truth and does nothing but speak it lovingly. We need both. We need to walk in truth, and we need to walk in love. In order to walk in truth and love, though, we need to know truth. We need to know his word. We need to know Christ, and we need to know the Bible, which is where we find who Jesus is. So here's where I want to start poking on people that are just like, it's all application. I don't care about any of that concepts and theology and Bible study. What are you going to apply 
if you do not know the word? How are you going to live if you don't have truth that you're basing that living on? Now, I understand when I was first a Christian and someone told me that, I said, well, I'd love to study the Bible. I have no idea how to do that. So thank you very much, preacher, who tells me to study the Bible. How do I do it? Well, that's a fair question. If you're in that boat, I would love to talk to you after. Just you could, you could do things throughout your week that can just start making drips and drops into the bucket of knowing truth, finding good sermons to listen to when you're driving or when you're washing the dishes. You, you, could, you could meet with somebody. Even today, find somebody here that you're like, I don't know how to study the Bible. Would you like to study the Bible with me? Would you like to help each other, hold each other accountable in studying and reading together? So if you're here and you're like, I would like to learn, I don't know how, be happy to suggest resources. Or if you're like, I would love to meet with somebody. I don't know who. I would love to connect you with somebody. So please come see me. With that said, point two, verse 7 through 12. Guard the truth in love. In verse 7 and 11, we're going to find three reasons we need to guard the truth. Notice he says in verse 7, four. Here's the reason that we're to walk in truth and love. For many deceivers have gone into the world. Here's your first reason you need to guard the truth. Why? Because there's a lot of people who are not preaching it or teaching it. For many deceivers, deceivers. We found this concept in, in 1 John chapter 4 when there's many false prophets who have gone in the world. But here he says deceivers. You realize what the Bible says about Satan? He comes as an angel of what? Light. He appears good. And true. We find false teachers, according to Matthew 5, will be sheeps in what kind of, or wolves in what kind of clothing? I just gave it away. Right? They'll look, they'll look good. They'll open the Bible. They'll say Jesus. The thing about deception is no one knows they're being deceived, or else it wouldn't be deception. No one's like, yeah, I keep going. They're deceiving me, so I just keep going. It's wonderful. I just love this church. Nobody does that. The thing about false teaching is it has much truth in it. It sounds right. They use Bible and say Jesus. So we need to guard ourselves. Here he says in verse 7, many false teachers, well, that's 1 John 4, this verse, for many deceivers, and then he says have gone into the world. We skip over that verse very quickly, that, that phrase, but it's, it's intentionally put there by John. This is actually the phrase used for Christians evangelizing. This is used of Jesus coming into the world for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost, coming for the sick, and he's the physician. This is the verse when he says, or this is the phrase when he says, go into the world, preach the gospel into all the world. Here we find missionaries. Only they're Satan's missionaries. The missionaries of the devil. They're spreading lies about Jesus rather than truth. So he says, for many deceivers have gone into the world. And then he tells us specifically what they are. Notice he doesn't say those who have different views on Genesis 1 or those who have different views about how the millennium and the rapture are going to happen. No, he says those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. There are people who are saying Jesus isn't God in the flesh. They're denying the essential doctrines of the faith. 
And John says, they're deceivers. Here is so important. It's so vital. He says that they're antichrist. We need to guard the truth. Why? Number one, because there are many false teachers who have gone into the world. There are many people who are going out and saying wrong things about Jesus. Here, John thinks this church's life is what's in the balance. Here, they're, they're, they're surrounded by error. They're, the soul of their church is at stake. And John says, you need to be on guard. You need to guard yourselves. Because there's many false teachers in the world. Second, verse 8. Why do we need to guard the truth in love? Verse 8. Because eternal life is at stake. Verse 8, I'm just going to tell you, I even into this morning, normally I'm done with my sermon on Thursday. Sunday morning today, I was still wrestling with what in the world does verse 8 mean. So I'm not 100% sold on it. There are a lot of good options. I do think what he's talking about is eternal life. And let me explain why. He says, watch yourselves. Now that's not singular. You individual Christian, watch yourselves. This is a plural command. Watch yourselves. Christians care for each other's soul. Christians watch out for one another. What John believes is that the church should be a place where we actually care about each other's spiritual state. We found at the end of 1 John 5 that we're to pray for one another when we see each other in sin. Here he's like, what people are teaching and being believed matters, and we should be watching out for each other. So we have the word of God for, to help develop discernment about what's true. But we also have the, the people of God watching our backs. Again, I know I keep saying this, but this isn't secondary doctrines that we're talking about. We're talking about the essentials of the faith. You, you're believing what about Jesus? Oh, oh, brother, oh, sister, could we, could we look at the Bible together? Because that's actually not who Jesus is. But notice verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. We have worked for, that's a reference to what the apostles have been doing. They've been laboring for what? To preach the right Jesus, according to 1 John, so that we have eternal life. Jesus has come to give us eternal life, and the apostles are laboring and working so that we know this, so that we have life. He's saying, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. That's always a reference to some sort of last day reward. I think John is saying is you need to guard yourselves in the truth because what is at stake is eternal life. What I don't think he's saying is he's talking if you have life, you could lose it. I think what he's talking about is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, they were not of us. Here he's saying there are false teachers that are, that are alluring to the ear. And guard yourselves, lest, lest you be like those who have shown themselves to not be Christians to begin with. Make sure you believe the truth, because that's where you find life. And don't go into other things, because that's not where life is found. Guard yourself. Why? Because life is at stake. Here I believe it's a call to persevere to the end. Call. And oftentimes, I think Tom Schreiner's way of wording it is helpful. He's like, these kind of warnings serve as the signs on the road that keep us on the right track. Don't go down that road. 
no life down that road. And we say, oh, I don't want to go down that road. And these warnings are the means to keep us on the path. So number one, guard the truth because many false teachers have gone out. Number two, our souls are at stake. Number three, verse nine, following error will be departure from truth. We're commanded to walk in truth, right? We already saw that today. If we don't, we're not obeying God's command. Verse nine. Everyone who goes on ahead. Remember, truth is this path that we've seen. We're not to go beyond it. We're not to say more than it says or less than it says. Here, I think the New American Standard translates it well. They go beyond. Everyone who goes beyond the truth says more than the truth actually is. This is a different way of saying they're preaching something false. They're preaching Jesus is a created being who's just like us, but maybe a little more powerful and morally better than us. That's a lie. They might be teaching Jesus is God, but he certainly didn't come to earth and die because God doesn't come to earth. That's a lie. He's saying don't go beyond. Don't go outside of the teaching of Scripture. Why? He doesn't say, really, it's just incidental. Who cares? It's not that big a deal. He says this. Look at what he says. Anyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, about Christ, does not have God. That's kind of important. Here's what he's saying. If you teach a different Jesus, remember, what did Jesus come to do? To make the Father known. So if we're denying who Jesus says God is, we don't have God. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's making God known to us. He's, he's making the Father visible. He's revealing God to us. He's the exact imprint of his image. He's the last word of God to man. And here we find, if we no longer hold to what he says about who God is, we, don't, we should not expect to have God as well. Because you can't separate Father and Son. They are one. Jesus is fully God. So if you don't have him, you don't have the Father. Oh, but there's good news. Verse 9. Whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and Son. Why? Because this Jesus who's come to make the Father known, if we believe what he says about God, we have the Father and we have his Son. We have grace and truth. Verse 10 through 13, this is where we'll end. He tells us not only to guard the truth, but he tells us that guarding the truth is actually loving. Verses 10 through 13. Guarding the truth is loving. Verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching about Jesus, do not receive him into your house or give him anything. Wow. John is saying don't show hospitality to false teachers. Don't open your home to false teachers. He says if anyone comes, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's John, doesn't matter if it's Paul, doesn't matter if it's me, doesn't matter if it's you. If anyone comes bringing something different, don't open your home and don't greet him. Two questions I have is what is he talking about and what is he not talking about? Number one, what is he trying to communicate? We have to understand, in this culture, unlike ours, hospitality would have been seen as an endorsement. It would have platformed the person. 
it would have given them an opportunity to spread their false teaching. Unlike our culture, where if you come to my house, it's not necessarily a stamp of approval on you as a teacher. Here, if they're like, we're, we're preaching something, we're peddling in teaching, come on in. What that would be doing is saying to everyone in the area, this is somebody I agree with. So what he is saying here is don't platform false teachers. It is unloving to platform people who do not preach the right Jesus. So for our day, this will be don't aid in the promotion of false teaching. What are some ways that we could do that? Well, our church rents to two different churches. We would not want to be a church that rents our facilities to people who would promote and propagate error about Jesus. We would not want to be a church that gives mission support to people who don't preach truth about Jesus. Why? Because that's be, that would be doing what he's saying not to. We'd be platforming and promoting and aiding in the spread of error about our Savior, which is a no-no. So what is he not saying? This is the first question. Every, I've, whenever I've read this book, it's always, what do we do when the cults knock on our door? This is not saying you can't have them come in and talk to them. This is saying don't platform false teachers, not don't evangelize. It is not a violation of this verse in the cultural context it in, is in when someone knocks on your door and says, hey, we believe that Jesus was the half-brother of Lucifer who was born of the spirit baby of Heavenly Father. Can we talk to you? What do I do? I don't slam the door and say, 2 John chapter or verse 10, slam the door. No, come on, let's talk. What do you believe about Jesus? Well, can I show you from those verses where actually it is saying he's God and, and try and explain to them the truth. This verse isn't saying it's wrong to do that. This verse is not saying don't evangelize people who are preaching a false gospel. It's saying don't platform them. Nor is this verse saying, hey, if you have non-Christian friends and family members, don't show them any hospitality. Someone that you work with that might be in a different faith say, well, I can't show you hospitality because you're not in the truth. No, this is not saying that. This verse would be saying, don't do this. The, the cults come knock on your door. You say, oh, come stay at my house. You can preach next Sunday, and then we'll try and give you money for admission support. That would be saying, don't do that. Not, don't have them in and try and talk about the Bible with them. Does that make sense? Here he's saying, don't platform, not don't engage. Don't promote, not don't try to share truth with. Verse 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. To promote false teaching would make us culpable for its spread. To welcome a false teacher in this culture would be partaking in its spread and make us guilty. Last question I have before we look at 12 and 13 and wrap it up is how is this loving? Didn't he just say that we're supposed to be truth? and love, and, and, and not, not welcome these people in their home. Wouldn't that be kind of the opposite? Wouldn't that undo what he just told us to do and love one another? Well, I think it is an expression of love. That's why we said this second half is guard the truth in love. It is loving to make clear what is true and what is false and not let people be continuing in their deception. It's loving 
to the church to not promote things that are damnable to people's souls. It would be very unloving for us as a church to put people up here who would be telling us lies that would allow people to follow them and not have the Father and Son as we found in verse 9. That would not be loving. It is very loving to the church to make clear what is error and what is truth. It's loving to the world for us to be clear about what we believe the Bible says about Jesus and what we don't believe it says. It is, it is loving for us to say we're not with them. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It makes clear to the world, oh, these people actually think something different than that. It's also loving to the false teacher to not let them continue as if everything's okay in the name of love. You preach your Jesus, I'll preach my Jesus, and we're just going to be happy together. That's not loving to them. They think they're okay. It's more loving to say, no, actually, hey, we, we do love you, but part of us loving you is going to be telling you we don't think that's right. We, we think the Bible says this, and you should align your teaching with this and repent of those false things. That's loving. Because as we've said from the beginning, love is not absent of truth. We need both. It's not loving to lie to people. If you were to just very simply answer that question, why, how is this loving? It's not loving to lie to people. Verse 12 and 13. Notice the flip. He says, don't welcome these people, but in 12 and 13, what does he expect to do? Come to them and expects them to what? Welcome him. Here, we shouldn't promote false teaching, but 12 and 13, we should promote those who preach the truth. John says, I have much to write to you. I'd rather not use paper and ink. Here he's saying, I'd rather not keep corresponding this way. I'd rather not keep texting. I'd rather not keep emailing. I'd rather do a face-to-face, person-to-person, personal. Instead, I hope to come to you face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. Here John's expecting, when I come, you're not going to treat me like the people I just said in verse 10 and 11. You're going to welcome me. Why? Because I bring the true gospel. I expect you to, to platform me as a preacher of truth, is what John is saying. Verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. I just love here, verse 13. Jimmy and I were talking about this this week. Sometimes, well, a lot of times, churches that believe the same things about Jesus act more like we're in competition. You've got to come to my church because my church needs to get bigger. John doesn't know anything about that. John's like, hey, this church greets you. This church, this church they are happy for you. They, they want you to do well. We don't want to be a church that's in competition with other Christ-exalting churches in our area even. We want to rejoice if down the road, Groveton Baptist experiences revival and can't contain anybody in its doors. Why? They preach Christ. Pillar, Woodlawn, right up the road. If they have an abundance of people, we're not going to sit here and say, oh, woe is us. We don't have... No, rejoice. We would greet them. Praise the Lord. You're preaching Christ and people are believing it. Amen. And here, these churches love each other. This church is greeting them. They care about how this church John is writing to is doing. That should be how our relationship with churches in our area is. Even between different denominations that preach the same Christ, we should rejoice 
that each other is doing well. We should care about how each other are doing. That's why in our prayer, our pastoral prayer, we pray for other churches in the area. They're not always Baptist churches. Because other people other than Baptists preach Jesus. And we want to see them do well. We want to see them thrive. We want God's blessing upon them. Here we find it in this book a perfect marrying of love and truth. We love each other by loving the truth. The more truth we love, the more it fuels our love for each other, not only here, but other Christians outside of here. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you have given us truth incarnate in your Son, grace in the flesh in your Son, and Father, as your son perfectly models how to speak the truth in love, help us, Father, to be perfectly balanced in love and truth. But we confess, Father, we are not perfect at it. We need your spirit, we need your grace to help us grow in knowing the truth and loving the truth. And we need your spirit and your grace to help us grow in loving each other. Help us do both, in Jesus' name. Amen.